Let's go here now to Acts chapter 2 as we open up our Bibles and we'll close out chapter 2 of Acts. We're going to be looking at verses 40 to 47. So if you'll follow along as I read Acts 2 starting at verse 40. And with many other words, he, that is Peter, who has been preaching here, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, I'm going to pause there for a quick commentary, and then we'll finish reading the rest of the chapter. But those few verses there sound like socialism, doesn't it? It's like, okay, well, the early church practiced this thing about selling all their possessions, pooling it together, and then distributing to people as they had need. And this kind of thing, you know, feeds people like Bernie Sanders who are like trying to convince you, like, we want free health care, we want free education, we want free everything for you. You know, just socialism, that's the way our country needs to go. Like, stop it, Bernie, because that's not the way we need to go. Socialism is not in the Bible. This is not socialism here. Look, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, if a man works, he shall not eat. You know what the Bible says? If a man does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Okay, there's a strong work ethic in the Bible. So let me couch this in the context. When they're selling their possessions and distributing to everybody in need, they're not doing it because of socialism. They're doing it because of survival. This is a first century church. If you're particularly a Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, you're likely to be killed. And if you're not killed, everybody's going to shun you. Your family's going to have a funeral for you, literally. Nobody will buy from your business because they're completely ostracizing you as a believer. By the way, we're not too far from that, I think, in these days where Christians are being so marginalized. It's like, who, who wants to you know, do business with us? They're going to cancel us. They're going to you know, close our bank accounts. All this kind of stuff that's happening right now. Um, so in the early church, in order to survive... They pooled their resources together and distributed them among each other, and it was a matter of survival. This is not a principle or a pattern for socialism. So I know that's a very appealing thing in this generation, particularly millennials and Gen Z and Gen X people. That They're like, you know, this is the way to go. It's not the way to go. Okay, you destroy a work ethic and then nobody is working and everybody just wants to, you know, receive instead of give and serve. And so this is simply a matter of survival. It was out of necessity. Who knows if, you know, we might come to days like that where Christians have to pool their resources together to survive and to take care of each other. I don't know. But that's the context here. Let's finish out the chapter. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Father, we thank you for your word now as we open it up together and study it. We thank you, Lord, for truth in a very relative world. And we pray that you would guide us, teach us, encourage us, and yes, Lord, even challenge us where we need it today. We just open up our hearts to the work of your Holy Spirit. So thank you for your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 
The lighthouse in Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, is the tallest lighthouse in the nation. It stands 193 feet tall. It was built in 1869, and when it was built in 1869, it was a half mile away from the coast. But after more than 100 years of beach erosion, the lighthouse stood only 160 feet from the coast. And so in 1999, 130 years after the lighthouse was built, the Army Corps of Engineers, in a a very strategically designed uh, move, relocated this 4,800-ton lighthouse another half mile inland to protect it from the beach erosion. The potential was that because of the erosion, that the lighthouse, the very thing that was supposed to guide sailors and warn sailors and lead them safely home, was threatened with collapse. And so they relocated it where it stands today. In a similar way, I have a concern for the church today in America. And I say church, capital C. I don't necessarily mean our church, lowercase c, although it is important to note we are not immune And we must be careful and humble that we don't experience a similar erosion. But there is an erosion of the church in America today, of the very foundation upon which the church is to be founded, that if not corrected, will lead to a continual decline of the church's influence. The church of Jesus Christ will end up being just irrelevant because we are potentially declining under the erosion of the culture and churches in America are closing. Churches in America are no longer standing for what they once did and once should. Every church in America should be like a lighthouse, shining the light so people can see their way home safely to Jesus, guiding people, warning people. This is the work of the church, much like a lighthouse, but in a similar way, the foundation is eroding. And there is a decline of the church in America. Now, I have no fear about it, you know, collapsing and in terms of of the demise of the church. I say decline of the church, but not demise of the church, because Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he will take care of his church. There will always be at least a remnant of the church of Jesus Christ. But the church in America is on the decline On average, 86 Protestant churches close every week in America. That is 12 a day. Lifeway Research out of Nashville, Tennessee, compiled a study in 2019. It was the last year that they did this study. They've been doing these surveys for decades. They do it about every five years. So the last data that we have is 2019. And in their research, they found 4,500 Protestant churches closed in America, 4,500 in 2019. That's pre-pandemic, so it's not influenced by the pandemic. 2019, 4,500 churches closed their doors, Protestant churches in America. Now, there's a glimmer of good news in that same study, because in the same year, 2019, 3,000 new churches were planted. But in the history of their research, it is the first time ever that church closures outpaced church openings in America. And not by a little bit, by 50%. 4,500 churches closed, 3,000 
were opened. And so the numbers are only getting worse in a post-pandemic world. In 1972, 92% of Americans identified as Christians. 92% of Americans identified as Christians in 1972. In 2020, that number was down from 92% to 64%. And it is not due to a growing number of other world religions because, according to the same study, only a combined total of 6% of Americans identify as either Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist. So why the decline in the numbers? Because the study said that Americans are starting to simply identify themselves as, quote, religiously unaffiliated. Now, here's why I mention all this. There's a verse in our text. It's verse 42. Acts 2.42. That gives us four foundational elements upon which the early church was established. And without these four elements, there's going to be a continual erosion of the church. And the church will become less and less relevant and more and more silent in our world. Acts 2.42, I'll put the verse on the screen for you. And they, the early church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so contained within this verse are four important foundational elements that define the early church, and those same foundational elements should still define the church today. And when they don't, where there has been an erosion of these elements, or worse, a complete outright abandonment of these elements, you end up with an anemic church at best and a dead church at worst. And now this isn't, only, this isn't to say that these four elements are the only things that should define the church, because you might look at these four elements and then say, well, what about outreach? What about missions? What about ministry to children and youth and young adults? So what about worship? Worship isn't even listed there as one of the four. What it is to say to us is, though, that all other aspects of ministry should flow from these four foundational elements. Okay? These aren't the only foundational elements, but everything else the church does should flow from this foundation of four, because without these four, the church becomes irrelevant and less like a lighthouse to guide and warn and lead people safely home to Jesus. And see, I believe, and I say this giving all glory to God, I believe that the reason our church has not experienced the kind of decline that is happening in many churches across America today is because we have endeavored to keep these four foundational elements in our church from day one. And God has honored that. That's what I'm convinced about. We have more people here at Cornerstone than ever in our history. If you haven't noticed by the parking, I just wanted you to know. Uh, there's more children. There's more youth. There's young, more, young, uh, more young adults than ever. We have more salvations recorded and baptisms than ever. We have more offerings than ever. We have grown substantially through the pandemic, both in person and online than ever. And again, to God be all the glory. And if we are to continue to see the hand of God move in the way that he has been moving, it will only be because we are true to these foundational elements that define the early church and should still define our church. Starting with, number one, apostles' doctrine. 
the apostles' doctrine. They devoted themselves earnestly. They continued earnestly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, this phrase is not clearly amplified anywhere else in Scripture, but it is pretty safe to deduce that it refers to the instruction that the apostles would have laid out, primarily from the Old Testament Scriptures, to guide the New Testament church. And now we have the benefit of having also the New Testament, which is additional doctrine of the apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we have both Old Testament and New Testament. We have even more of the doctrine than what the early church would have originally had without those letters. And so in a broad sense, when we talk about apostles' doctrine, we're talking about the Bible, the importance of the centrality of Scripture, which is the Word of God. And thus here at Cornerstone, we place a high premium on teaching the Bible here as not just some old antiquated book with a bunch of old stories, but as the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. That's what the Bible is, ladies and gentlemen. And therefore, we teach it from cover to cover. I'll go from Genesis to Revelation. When we're done, we start over again. This is like our third time through the Bible here at Cornerstone in the years that I've been here. We go from cover to cover without compromise, without watering it down. We don't defend it. We don't need to defend it. It's God's Word. Neither do we amend it. You know, the problem with a lot of churches today is they, 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 they shape the Bible to suit the culture. You know what we need to be doing? We need to use the Bible to shape us. We need to put ourselves against the mirror of the Bible and ask the Lord, where do I need to change? Not how can I change the Bible to suit what's going on in our world. This is timeless truth for us. It may not always be palatable, friends. There's some things that are good for you that aren't always delicious. All right? If I had my way, I'd be eating ice cream and donuts all day long. That's all I would eat. But, you know... Brussels sprouts are good for you. I just don't like how it tastes. Broccoli, somebody loves Brussels sprouts. All right, praise God for you. You can have mine. Uh, You know, broccoli, you know, it's good for you. There are things that are good for you, but you don't always, you know, like this, this isn't always delicious, right? There's some things I read in the Bible and I'm like, this isn't all that delicious, but it's good for me. It's good for me. And we can't just parse out the parts that we like that are tasty And the other parts, I don't like that. And, you know, that was first century. And, you know, those people are backwards and they were uneducated. And, you know, we're much more sophisticated and educated now. Really? So you know more than God. Like, and you just want to decide how to live your life. You know what the Bible says? The way of the transgressor is hard. You live your life the way you want, you're going to run into additional hardships than what this fallen world already offers. And so the Bible should shape us. We need to conform to its image, not the opposite. And we don't avoid the controversial, quote, controversial stuff either when we teach through the Bible. We let the Bible speak for itself. And in the course of going through the whole Bible, it will touch on every sin issue and every social and cultural and political issue of the day. You know, frankly, when I speak to different pastors around the country from time to time, a lot of, pa- a lot of pastors think that if they start teaching the Bible in its totality, which means you're going to touch on every hot topic at some point or another, They think if they start to do that, it's going to drive people away, and with the people will go the money too. You know, it's been my experience here at Cornerstone is quite the opposite. People are starving for the truth. People are hungry to know the truth. 
Yes, there are some people who will leave because they don't like hearing sometimes what the Bible has to say, or they don't like the way I've said it, one or the other, or both. But I have found from time to time that for every one person who leaves, three more come because our world is starving for somebody just to tell them the truth. I went to a Richmond Convention Center last month. I was invited to speak to a group of pastors, and I spoke to them about some of these things. Um, that's what I was asked to speak on. And afterwards, as I'm I walked off the platform, I was talking to some of the pastors, they came up to me and they said, you know, we just have too many colleagues that we know, other pastors who are too afraid to really get bold about the scriptures and addressing some of these sinful and cultural and social and political issues of the day. And, and uh, so our colleagues have just decided they're not going to do that because it's too controversial and so they're just going to remain silent. And I said to them, you know what? In a similar way, pastors in the 1940s in Germany said the same thing. And they were seduced into silence by a madman. And when the church became silent, in effect, millions of people died because of it. You say, are you going to lay the blame entirely on the church? I mean, not entirely, but the church. Bonhoeffer, one of the exceptions to those German pastors who actually came against Hitler and Nazi Germany, Bonhoeffer said, quote, the church is the conscience of the state. I mean, if the church is not holding the banner of what is right and true, who will? Of course, sadly, they executed Bonhoeffer in 1945 at the age of 39 for saying such a thing. But what is to happen then? If the church remains silent and we don't teach the Bible, I told those pastors, look, people are hungry for truth because they don't know what to believe. People don't know what to believe from our culture. Isn't this true? You don't know what to believe from the government. Have you wondered how much the government is telling you the truth and how much they're lying these days? You don't know what to believe from the media, right? What is true from what is a bunch of lies? And so I have found that people are eager to come to church because they just want somebody to help them sift through the madness by looking at the Bible so that the Bible can speak to all the issues of our day. Listen, the, the Bible has all the answers to life. The Bible has all the answers to life. And if we abandon the Bible, as many churches have tragically done, then we offer no hope for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. We offer no assurance that there's life after death, that you get to go to heaven when you know Jesus. And we offer no response to the social, cultural, and political evils of our day. And we must. Look, the ultimate message of the Bible, the primary message of the Bible, is that God is holy, pure, just, and right in all his ways, and mankind is sinful in all his ways. But because a holy, perfect, righteous, and pure God loves us so much, he offered his son Jesus to die as a sacrifice for our sins on a cross so that as many as believed in Jesus would have eternal life through faith in what Jesus Christ did for us. The primary message of the Bible is about eternal life. The secondary message of the Bible is how to navigate everyday life. And that's why we need to teach the full counsel of God's Word. Because it will help us not only understand the primary message of the Bible, about how to get saved, how to have a relationship with Jesus, and how to go to heaven but also how to navigate all these other secondary issues of life. Martin Luther once said that 
If you preach the gospel with the exception of the events related to the times, then you are not preaching the gospel at all. So it has to be both the primary message and the secondary message. So we understand how to do life. And the Bible speaks to all of that. And here's the deal. See, the crazier that the world gets, the more I need my Bible. Because the crazier the world gets, the more I need my Bible to center me and to encourage me. Yes, also to correct me, to counsel me. We need the Bible because it will help us to understand what is going on in our crazy world. This is why the Bible says about itself, Psalm 119, 105, God's word is a lamp to guide my life. Jeremiah 15, 16, it is food for my soul. Jeremiah 23, 29, it is like fire that refines me and like a hammer that breaks up the hard places of my heart. Ephesians 5, 26, it's like water that washes away the impurities of my life. 1 Peter 2, 2, it's like milk that nourishes a newborn baby. We need the Bible. That's why it will be central to all that we do here. Not just in the main service, but in women's studies and men's studies and youth group and children. You know, your kids right now are getting the Bible back in children's classrooms at their age level. And so together, we're going to be about the Bible, the whole truth and nothing but the truth around here. And why is that so important? Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So we need to be about what is eternal around here. And that's why God's word is so important. Back in 2017, I did a seven-part series on, it's called The Blessings and Benefits of the Bible, when we were going through Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and it has so much information about the importance of the Bible. So you can check that out if you want to learn more about why the Bible is so important to what we do around here. But look, the early church continued steadfastly in the word of God, and so must we. Number two. They also continued steadfastly in fellowship. Now, this is the Greek word koinonia. We really don't have an English equivalent for the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia is found 20 times in the New Testament. 12 out of the 20 times it is translated fellowship like it is here in Acts 2.42. Also like it is in John, 1 John 1.7, which says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, that's koinonia, with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So close relationships with one another is koinonia. But also in Romans 15, 26, it is translated contribution. Romans 15, 26 says, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So contributing to the needs of others is koinonia. In Hebrews 13, 16, it is translated sharing, as in sharing what you have. It says, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Sharing your resources is koinonia. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it is translated in English communion. The verse says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So, This relationship we have with God and through the Holy Spirit, that is koinonia. So when you you put it all together to try to understand some English 
similarity. Koinonia is basically a closeness, a togetherness, a caring for and a sharing with other people who are united in the common bond of Jesus Christ. That's koinonia. And this is why, by the way, we call our small home group Bible studies koinonia groups around here at Cornerstone, or K groups for short. People are like, what does the K stand for? It stands for koinonia. Well, what's koinonia about? Well, now you know, okay? <laughs> koinonia. I mean, it's a big word, but it, it means all those things. It's a closeness. It's a togetherness. It's a unity under the bond of Christ. And we come together. We care for each other. We share with each other. That's koinonia. The early church practiced it. We need to continue to practice such a thing. We have somewhere around 140, approaching 140 different small home group Bible studies, K groups, in our, in our fellowship. And, um, and we have another seven, by the way, I just learned this, seven that have sprung up spontaneously around the country. We didn't, we didn't create them. Our online viewers, welcome to our online viewers. They started realizing that there's several neighbors in the area who are also watching Cornerstone online. So they have gotten together, seven different places around the country, and they have their Koinonia groups too. And they follow the same study guides. The study guides that we write are based on my Sunday teaching so that you can dig it out deeper in a small group Bible study and, and dialogue about it. Because this is a monologue on Sunday morning, friends. It's not a dialogue. You don't get to talk. I talk. All right? And, uh, and please don't try to talk or we'll tase you. But, and, but I, with the love of Jesus. But anyway... Um, no, we won't tase you. But um, the point is that in a small group, you get to talk about these things and dig it out further and ask questions. And so there's a facilitator in every group. Uh, someone opens their home. And these groups, uh, you can join based on a variety of things, based on where you live, location, based on stage of life. We have groups based on whatever stage of life you're in, whatever age demographic. We even have groups based on languages. We have an Arabic-speaking group. We have a few Spanish-speaking groups. We even have an Urdu, a Hindi-speaking group. And uh, these are just groups that God has just generated here. And so um, I want to encourage you, if you're not already in a K-group, to consider joining one. It helps to make a large church more friendly and intimate where you get to build relationships with people, do life together. You get to pray with each other, care about each other, share with one another. Nobody's going to call on you to pray, okay, unless you want to, but it is a wonderful way of just developing friendships within the body of Christ. And so you can go to our website, cornerstonechapel.net, go to the slide that says connect, click that, and scroll down just a little bit, and there's Koinonia groups, and you can click join a group, or if you want to host or lead a group, it's a, it's a way to get involved, and I encourage you to check that out. Why? Because the early church continued steadfastly in fellowship and communion, uh, and, and um, in Koinonia, rather, and we need to be practicing the same. It's important. We need each other, friends. The church needs each other. There's a reason why Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake the assembling of one another. Especially as we see the day approaching. Because we need each other today. Especially today. To support each other, encourage each other. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I don't know what is coming down the pike. But it, it sure seems to me that 
things are less friendly towards Christians in our world. Um, that's nothing new to some places in other countries where they are regularly martyred for their faith. But in America, that's new to us. We're not used to the kind of vitriol and the cancel culture directed in large part against Christians. We're not used to the hatred and, and you know, I, I know a guy who's, Wells Fargo canceled his bank accounts because he, he was too, in their opinion, too religious, too conservative. Like, like things are happening in our world today um, that should at least make us more aware that we need each other like never before. And so that kind of fellowship is important. Number three, they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread is a phrase that could mean eating together. And in fact, one of the verses in our section, verse 46, probably does refer to breaking bread as eating. Verse 46 says, so, continue, the, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So it can mean sharing a meal together. Like it does probably in verse 46. But in our verse, in verse 42, in the context, it probably refers more to communion or the Lord's Supper. We can use either phrase. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, talking about communion, he said this, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And so, in the context there of communion or the Lord's Supper, breaking bread uh, refers to the remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus who died on a cross for our sins. That's probably what is meant here by Acts 2.42. Communion should be a regular part of a church's worship service. So here at Cornerstone, once a month on Sundays. In fact, at the end of today's Bible study, we're going to have communion together. And once a month on Wednesday nights, we will regularly partake in the communion elements. And here's something interesting that the early church practiced that um, I, I, I got to be honest, I was a little convicted about, like, we probably need to pay more attention to this than, than I have been when we share communion together. That verse I just read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul talks about how we, we're all one body because we eat from one loaf. The early church had this understanding, and it was, I'm, I'm going to use the word mystical, but I don't mean it in a weird way. I just mean that they... They understood in, in spiritual terms uh, something that happens at, at, at the time when communion is shared together. And, and here's, and here's what, what they understood. In those days, they partook of the communion elements with one loaf of bread and one cup. So like, you know, they would just share communion, breaking pieces off of one loaf, and they would drink all of, out of one cup. Now, I know, you know, we're a little more hygienic conscience, I, I, conscious today. I'm not going to say that, that I'm a germaphobe, but we are more conscious of germs, okay? So today, we're not like drinking out of the same chalice. Those, those of you in, from Catholic backgrounds, you know, you're like, you're used to that. That's what you used to do, right? You'd stand in a line, go up, the priest, they, they used to start to take a cloth and wipe, wipe the chalice at least. But what good does that do? You're getting backwashed, ladies and gentlemen. You're, you're, 
I mean, okay, thanks for wiping it. You're getting the backwash. Terry and I, years ago, were, were at a church service, and uh, we noticed that they were going to have communion that day. It wasn't, it wasn't a Catholic church. It was a Protestant church. And, and they had one loaf of bread down on the front altar, and they had one, one chalice. And halfway through the sermon, I realized, oh, this is, this is one big happy fest here. Like, we're going to all be drinking out of the same cup. So I, I turned to Terry, and I whispered to her, I'm like, as soon as they, as soon as they, as soon as they say we're going to have communion, you and I are going to run down to the front like we're on fire. Okay? <laughs> Because we're, we're going to be the first ones down there to drink out of that cup. I know it's selfish, but I'm sorry. I'm not, I don't want to get a bunch of backwash and crumbs in my cup. I'm gonna, I want my own cup. They can have my backwash. I'm not going to have their backwash. All right, now, today, now we, we, it's like, you know, hermetically sealed. Like, like it's all really sterile now, okay? It kind of takes a little bit away from the, from the element, but... Here's what they honestly believed in the first century. I share from the same loaf that, from which you partake. That which nourishes me is the same thing that nourishes you, and it is a reminder that we are one body together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Partaking of the same loaf was a reminder to them that despite all our difference, our differences can be cultural racial, ethnic, we can have all kinds of backgrounds, okay? But the beauty of the body of Christ is we come together with all our differences and we unite them in harmony under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge our differences and we make room and we we love each other for our differences because that's what helps make up the richness of the body of Christ. But we're one church. We're one body under the Lordship of Jesus. And they continued steadfastly, earnestly, and the breaking of bread. They shared communion together, and that's important for us too. The last foundational element is prayer. Prayer. Prayer is not just talking to God. It's also listening to Him. David would say in Psalm 5, verse 3, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. So it does involve talking. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. But we also read in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Like part of praying is not only doing all the talking. Sometimes it's being still enough to know that he's God and to incline a listening ear to hear what the still small voice of the Lord says. To still all the noise in our world. To come before the Lord in quietness of heart. And just pray and seek his face. More than seeking his hand, by the way. We have the tendency to run to God when we want to seek his hand. What can we get from God? But it is more beneficial to run to him to seek his face. To know him. To spend time with him. In communion and fellowship with him through prayer. And it isn't that we are telling God anything he doesn't already know. When we do speak. Because he knows all things. It is inviting him into everything. Of my life. It is not just wanting to see the hand of God move, it is also wanting Him to move my heart, to bring my life into conformity to who He is and what His Word says. Now, I hope that we're all doing that kind of thing in a personal and private way where we spend time in prayer. In Acts 2.42 here, it probably is speaking more towards corporate prayer, the importance of the body coming together, praying together. 
Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Where through corporate times and small group settings where youth and men and women and we get together in, in the main church service where we take time in our service to pray. You may not be aware of this, but I, I want to make it uh, available to any of you who want to join. There's been a group for years on Sunday mornings that meet before the first service at 7.30 in the morning, right off here to my left in the ministry room, 7.30 every Sunday mornings. I'd love it for so many people to show up next Sunday. They don't have enough room to contain the group in the ministry room, and they've got to relocate the prayer somewhere else. Because there's a group of people that for years have been praying, and you can join in that corporate prayer too, every Sunday morning, 7.30. The women of the church have Friday morning prayer times at 9.30 in room 700 upstairs. On Wednesday nights, we incorporate prayer as part of our worship time. When we're not doing uh, child dedications or having communion, we incorporate prayer in our worship time where... Toward the end of the worship times, pastors and ministry leaders come up to the front and then you can slip out of your seat and come and be prayed with quietly while everybody else is worshiping. Prayer is a part of all of our gatherings on some level, in our Bible studies, in our children's ministry, youth, ongoing. Listen, we even have a group of people, God bless them, who do prayer walks around the campus at our, at our, at our Middleburg property for the, for the school, where they just walk the campus, saturating it in prayer, getting ready for all the students to come there this fall. You can join them too. There's opportunities for prayer, but the point is, listen, Jesus said in Matthew 21, 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer. We need to be a praying people who draw near to the Lord through personal, private, and corporate prayer. The early church continued steadfastly in prayer, and so must we. Amen? We're going to share communion now before we go. So if you bow your heads, ushers, if you'd come. Father, thank you for this time, Lord, in your word, to remind us of the foundation upon which the early church was built. We pray, God, we would continue to be faithful to those four elements, your word, fellowship, communion, and prayer. And now one of those aspects, Lord, we're going to share together now as we break bread, as we have communion together. We pray, God, you'd meet us here as we do this in remembrance of Jesus, the one who paid the price for our sins. And as we are reminded that we are one body, different gifts, different backgrounds, different people who come together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're one family. And we thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the body of Christ. Bless our time now as we share communion together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The ushers are going to distribute trays down each row. And you're invited to take one of these cups out of the tray. Uh, if you're new or you don't know what this is about, it's okay. Let the tray go by you. you. You are free to let it pass by you. But for those of us who understand, I'm going to invite you to take one of these cups out. Just don't, don't partake of it yet until everybody's been served. Mike is going to lead us in a worship song, and then I'll come back up and we'll partake together. Cast my mind to Calvary. For Jesus bled 
and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. My Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone. Messiah still and all alone. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore, for endless days. Son of heaven rose again. Oh, trample death, where is your sting? The angels roll for Christ the King. Come on, let's all stand together. when you broke bread with your disciples at that last Passover. You took the bread, you gave thanks, you broke it. You said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. So let's peel off that top cellophane, take the bread, and let's eat in remembrance of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you died for our sins. That you rose from the dead to prove your victory over sin and death. And now the cup. We remember, Lord, your words also when you took the cup after supper. And you said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. And we do likewise in Jesus' name. Let's partake together. 
Now, before we're dismissed, I want to do one more thing that we talked about in our study this morning. And that is, I just want you to pray with me. So would you bow your heads, eyes closed. I want you to pray for the person on your right. You don't need to talk to them. You don't need to ask what they need prayer for. Just pray a generic prayer over them. Just something like this. Say, Lord, bless this person on my right. Help them in whatever way they need you today. Do a good work in their hearts and their lives. If they need healing, heal them, Lord. If they need salvation, save them, Lord. If they need encouragement, encourage them, Lord. If they need to be challenged about some scenario, Lord, you can do that as you do in my own life. Now pray for the person on your left. Say, Lord, same for this person on my left. I lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Be gracious to them. Help them today. Use them for your glory. Whatever way they need you, Lord, would you please visit them? Take care of them, admonish them, encourage them. Do what you need, Lord. But we're thankful that together we all serve you as Lord and Savior over all. There's no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. And your name is Jesus. And we love you and we praise you together. In Jesus' name, we pray these things that everybody said, amen and amen.